0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we acknowledge the fact that it is 500 years since the Reformation by talking with Kenneth Briggs, author of the new book, The Invisible Bestseller, which looks for the Bible in America and asks the question how can a book, one that is found in courthouses, libraries, and millions of households across the land, be everywhere and nowhere at the same time? Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Kenneth Briggs. He's a journalist and commentator who worked for many years as a religion writer for Newsday and as a religion editor for The New York Times. He's taught journalism and religion at Columbia University, Lafayette College, and Lehigh University. His previous books include The Power of Forgiveness and Double-Crossed, Uncovering the Catholic Church's Betrayal of American Nuns. Today, we're discussing his new book, The Invisible Bestseller, Searching for the Bible in America. Kenneth Briggs, welcome to Things Not Seen. Well,
1: thank you very much. I appreciate being here.
0: Your book subject is near and dear to my heart, and I'm, I'm anxious to get into the meat of it with you. But, but as a preliminary sort of question, when we use the phrase, the Bible... I think people have the sense that we're talking about something pretty simple. But when you think about the Bible, what does that word mean to you?
1: Oh, I think of the extraordinarily rich compendium of voices, origins, personalities, ways of thinking, a whole panoply of thought, history, poetry, and... and uh, kind of endless procession through a a very long series of books Uh, for protestants uh 66 books and then when you get to other other traditions add other ones but A a fascinating complexity, and challenging
0: complexity. You often will hear it said that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. But when I've actually tried to research where that figure comes from, I've found some competing claims. There are some that claim that Chairman Mao's Little Red Book is the best-selling book of all time, or Gone with the Wind is the best-selling book of all time. So when we encounter this phrase, the best-selling book of all time, how should we... Think about that critically, and is that an accurate way of depicting the Bible's role in the marketplace?
1: Well, it, is and it isn't it is by by sheer volume over a long period of time. If you take in all the 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 vast numbers of books that were published in so many different versions, it gets up to be a very formidable guesstimate, although everything can't be counted. Some things that are called, souls are actually distributed. So it's not an exact figure. It's something of an impression. It's something of a trade promotion. But I think it's fair to say that for all sorts of reasons, the Bible gets transferred from a publisher to a recipient more than any book ever has. And, well, uh, I'll do credit to Margaret Mitchell and to Chairman Mao. Those were more limited, explosive appearances on the scene, whereas the Bible has managed to troop on year after year. And the people who print them give you some basic statistics, although it's surprisingly secretive as a a publication arm. It add up the impressions plus the numbers of actual sales that you can calculate, And, and it comes up to... Around $25 million a year. And I say more or less because you're absolutely right. It's a more of an impression than it is a hard figure.
0: Well, and you actually got so interested in this that it took you not just to your armchair, but on a, a, a veritable odyssey. You you crisscrossed the United States researching this book, The Invisible Bestseller. What was it that first got you sort of on the, the trail of this and wanting to write a book about the Bible in this way?
1: What got me onto it was attending a little church in a small town in Massachusetts when I was a boy and hearing the Bible and being absolutely fascinated because it lifted me beyond the limits of my small New England town mentality. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, I just mean that we were rather limited in what we had available with which to evaluate what life was about. And I would hear that minister stand right up in the middle of that little pulpit with the the Bible front and center and read from it stories and thoughts that carried me to new places for realizing possibilities of how to look at life, and particularly how to look at life in the community in which I was located and the area where I was located, Because it was very working class, very, I would have to say, oppressed. Uh, Most of the people in town were were factory workers. And I heard something, particularly in the prophets, that you had these wild guys in the the prophets actually taking communities to task for abusing their brothers and sisters. That had an enormous impact on me. And uh, so that really got me started way back then. And... I've never lost that sense of urgency that's in the Bible, both regard to prophets, but also through the New Testament, about where meaning and purpose lie in life. So that's never left me, and I've always wanted to write a book about this kind of thing, so somebody finally let me. (laughs) So
0: So just a moment ago, you were saying that in this New England town, you encountered these stories, and... I was trying to understand from what you were saying whether the impact on you was more narrative, like you were, you were taken away to these exotic places, or more moral, because you also mentioned that you really gravitated towards the prophets. And so balance that for us, the wonderful stories versus the, the moral exhortation. Which to you is the leading voice in the Bible, and which is more vital and important to you now as an adult?
1: That's a, that's a very good distinction. Um, I, uh, I think I was gripped uh, by both, and I think I co-mingled both of those areas. I think the stories themselves were, were fascinating, and of course, when, as kids, you always love to uh, run across something like Balaam's ass, and the exotic qualities of things, uh, I think, I, as a kid, I found pretty interesting. But they all seemed to have a certain relevance to the life around me. And they all seemed to have to do with a, a perspective on that life that wasn't coming from any place else, and that it was above and beyond the rather sad, fateful vision that most people had. So I think they had a relevance, but also had to do with what purposes could be found within dismal circumstances the stories were concrete enough that they resonated with me because they weren't about people unlike us. They were people like us who were going through these things and experiences the need for healing in one way or another. And somehow that got through to me. And I I have to say, this this was pretty early, so I'm trying not to claim more than was actually there, but I was probably eight nine years old and remember that and kept thinking of course with regard to my parents I kept thinking well I hope my parents hear this <laughs> because they that will convey something that I can't do personally but it had relevance and it had a, a sign of hope in the in the middle of some kind of lots of miseries I, I took a lot from that both from the stories because the stories gave credence to the lessons that I think underlay them.
0: So a moment ago you, we were discussing the the sort of ways in which Bible reading and Bible interaction have shifted over a succession of generations, basically since World War II until the present day. Would you feel comfortable telling our listeners what your level of interaction with the Bible is at this point in your life?
1: Quite honestly, doing this book uh, increased it considerably. I had always been involved in one way or another with the Bible uh, as a reader and as a as one who saw its importance in lots of aspects of my life. But doing this book really revved up that interest and that urgency a lot in me. I've become much more attentive to it. One uh, incident really brought that to the, the fore with me. I took some time and went to a, a federal prison to get, to. I wanted to see where the Bible actually existed in various uh, places in the country, various venues, and uh, one of them I thought should be a prison, so I went and spent some time there, and I was quite moved by a lot of the things I saw and heard. One time, uh, after talking to a group of men about their Bible study process, which involved both the study and the kind of ongoing consultation they go back and forth during the week when one had a problem or another wanted to discuss something. A little man came up to me toward the end of the time there, and he said, do you read the Bible every day? And I said, well, most days. And then I realized what he was asking. And that was, are you, as, <laughs> are you as committed to this as we are? <laughs> and, and it made me step back and say, you know, I should obtain a more regular discipline with this. And it changed my outlook so that I'm now a, a very much a daily lectionary reader and read other things and commentaries and that sort of thing. So I've kind of come up to speed in some ways on things, and I'm very happy about it, and then the book became the occasion for
0: it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kenneth Briggs. He's a veteran journalist and commentator who's worked for many years as a religion writer for Newsday and as a religion editor for the New York Times. We're discussing his new book, The Invisible Bestseller, Searching for the Bible in America. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you might have figured out that I'm a bit of an odd mix. I'm lefty and progressive in my politics, and I'm conservative and traditional in my theology. I'm a full gospel, Acts 4 and 5 kind of guy. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a new degree program being offered by my friends at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. It's their new Master of Arts in Public Ministry. Hey, I'm in touch with listeners, and I know a lot of you are serving your communities in nonprofits and civic organizations. Some of you are even on the front lines as activists and organizers. You're trying to make the world a better place. The folks at Garrett want to make this world a better place, too, and they know the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to that effort. If you've been wanting to integrate your faith with your work, you'll want to check out their new Master of Arts in Public Ministry. The entire city of Chicago will be your classroom. You'll graduate with a stronger network and a better understanding of how Jesus Christ is speaking to the world of today. Get excited about this. This could be your next step. Go to garrett.edu slash MAPM, the initials of Master of Arts in Public Ministry. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T dot E-D-U slash M-A-P-M. Tell Katie and Jill I sent you. They're good people, and they'll be glad to tell you more about the new Master of Arts in Public Ministry from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. Once again, that's g-a-r-r-e-t-t dot e-d-u slash m-a-p-m. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and we're speaking today with Kenneth Briggs. He's a veteran journalist, and we're talking about his new book, The Invisible Bestseller, Searching for the Bible in America. Well, about a decade ago, I got a a gift from an uncle of mine, and it was my grandmother's Bible, the Bible that she had used in the last years of her life Mm -hmm. before she passed. And in, in looking through this Bible, I learned a lot about my grandmother just in seeing the parts that she had underlined, the parts where she had she had put a marker in the page, a part where she had written on a note card some reflection from either a sermon that she had heard or a Bible study that she had attended. It was clear to me that she was interacting very deeply and very personally with this book on almost a daily basis and and what you're describing that that experience of being in a in a small town and hearing these exhortations I look around today, and my father is a Gideon, and he describes the eclipse of the Gideons and the whole ministry of giving away Bibles. Uh, I, I'm friends with people that run the Chicago Bible Society and the American Bible Society, and all of them are sort of rethinking their missions. And I, as you're talking about this sweep from your childhood to the present day, what do we see in terms of that level of daily interaction with the physical book from maybe the time of your childhood when my grandmother would have been scribbling these notes in the, on the note cards and in the margins, and to the present day?
1: From uh, my childhood, I sort of came of age just kind of during the end of World War II, the beginning of the aftermath. And I think at that time, the Bible was considered somehow essential to one's well-being. It came through in different ways, and I don't want to glorify or or glamorize that age because there were a lot of people who, of course, ignored it, including most of my family. I mean, I don't ever remember a Bible reading in my house, Uh, so it wasn't a golden age. But there was a feeling that it was necessary and that one's fate somehow had to do with what was in there. And I think some people took it as their commission, to involve themselves in it on a very regular basis, and I, I did have a grandfather who fell into that category, and he would sit there in, in his chair and read that, and he would do likewise. He would scribble notes or leave leave comments in his diary. And what impresses me now, uh, looking back at some of that material, was that it was not all pragmatic. It was about how I should conduct my life in such a way and what I need to remember or what I need to reinforce or confess or ask help for or something like that. Um, I think that type of intense, productive uh, engagement has largely been lost and that um, the Bible has become one more resource book that is not so necessary anymore. A a lot of people don't see the need uh, for incorporating, and and they don't see themselves in it either. So it works both ways. They don't see that their destiny is somehow connected with the message that's in the Bible. Maybe, or, or at least for a lot of people, that message is a lot more distant than it used to be. Uh, so that one's vulnerability to it, one, the, the the pull of the Bible toward looking at what your life looks like and what it will look like uh, is much weaker than it used to be. Not to say that there aren't people who still are engaged in that way, but many fewer. And it's not the expected behavior that it was before. Even people who neglected it expected it were... Felt some level of expectation in the past, and that, that's just weakened tremendously. Uh, what, that's what I found.
0: Well, we've, me- we've mentioned that the book was in many ways a road trip, so you went not only from a, to speak to people about a prison, but you went to the halls of academia and in, into the middle of a feud between the American Academy of Religion mm. and the Society of Biblical Literature. And I think our, our listeners might be interested in some of what you discovered at, at that level as well about, about how the Bible and, and thoughts about the Bible and the way the Bible is used is playing out in, in an academic setting.
1: Uh, I'm really glad you were asked about that. What I found is that the, the the tension within the society of biblical literature, in particular, is now very very pointedly focused between those who are on the kind of strict academic side, where personal belief is not believed to enter, uh, to enter into it. In other words, you. You do the research on a fairly uh, scientific, empirical method. And that side versus the side that says, we're not leaving that aside, but we also bring a confessional or believer's mentality to it. And uh, for a long time, the academic, the strict scholarly academic side, uh, was in the very strong majority. Uh, This was after fundamentalism as such had been defeated, and literalism was kind of on the wane. And uh, literalism is still on the wane, but the idea that reading the Bible and studying the Bible has to take place apart from personal faith or apart from the consideration and perspective of personal faith has now grown to a point where there's a real bit of debate Tension within the uh, Society of Biblical Literature. So I think it's an extremely important debate. And I don't know where it's going to go exactly, but I think it's going to profit the whole field because it's been a long time coming. It's no longer fundamentalism versus scientism. It's now how do you work as a legitimate scientific scholar within a framework of faith, or can you? And I, I, I think there's a lot of value in, in that debate because it's going to come out with a think-up perspective that might lend some um, give on both sides. So I, I think that I came upon it uh, somewhat surprisingly. I didn't realize what was going on. But I'm glad I did because it frames intellectually the question that I think is being, uh, oh, I don't know, neglected in other areas of life. We thought we got rid of the science-religion debate in an intellectual level a long time ago. This reintroduces it in some way that I think has some legitimacy.
0: Well, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's almost as if we're talking about uh, people that are studying medicine. And they're saying, well, but I don't really believe in germs. And, and the argument would be if you don't believe in one of the fundamental sort of assumptions of the discipline or the field – How can you actually engage with the, the, furthering the knowledge of this field? An argument could be made if you don't actually pray before you read, or if you don't think that there is, that there's a reality that's being talked about in this book, how can you read it with accuracy and, and with legitimacy? Is that, is that a good way of characterizing at least one side of the debate?
1: Yes, I would say that that's a valid way of looking at it. And I think there, there's a, that's an argument on one side that says once you strip it, strip it of a faith mentality. If you're stripping your study of faith mentality, then you're missing the insight that's there. Uh, I also understand the wariness of starting down that road, or getting, or wondering how much, how much uh, credibility should you give to that without losing the value of the scholarly enterprise, because I do believe, and I, I'm sure I share it with you, that the value of that scholarly work, it brings to light elements of how the Bible came about, what what's in it, uh, who said what, and so on, that I think the, um, the the side of faith has been cautious about to the point of not accepting what could be of value in promoting the Bible as a book that, yes, has its, uh, has its different origins but still speaks in an authoritative way. But that is the question. What is authoritative about the Bible at this point, and how can you study it without leaving the traditional spiritual authority out of it?
0: So the Bible is so ubiquitous that I can go to a used bookstore and find copies of it for 25 cents. If I go to certain places at certain times of the day, people will hand me a Bible for free. If I go to my smartphone, I can download a Bible app. You could argue that we are swimming in the Bible. So how is it possible that people can make money publishing the Bible and are they concerned about that question?
1: I think it remains enough of a a token of American rationale and the American way of life that it it has appeal as that token and as something of a, a keepsake that ensures something about American life and one's own place in some kind of a religious framework. And people don't look at it in a hostile way, they kind of look at it as something that one should have. So I, I think it has a sentimental value. So I think it, it still it still sells. And again, I'm not sure how much is sheer distribution without any sort of accountability as to what happens to them and how much are sales to people who want them. Publishers respond to both to uh, enterprises that want to buy Bibles, Give them a hand to where uh, they can.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Kenneth Briggs about his new book, The Invisible Bestseller, Searching for the Bible in America. Kenneth Briggs is a journalist and commentator who has worked for many years as a religion writer for Newsday and as a religion editor for The New York Times. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Kenneth Briggs. He's a journalist and commentator who has worked for many years as a religion writer for Newsday and as a religion editor for the New York Times. We're discussing his new book, The Invisible Bestseller, Searching for the Bible in America. Well you mentioned ancient debates and old quarrels and one of your road trips took you actually to sort of the the seedbed of of the modern culture wars. You went to Tennessee to the site of the Scopes Monkey Trial and I wonder if you would tell our listeners what you found there uh, in in the contemporary setting that tied back to that that debate from from the the earlier century.
1: Yes, uh, that's a good reference because to me, what I I wanted to go back to the crucible of what became a very hardened conflict between the the true believers and the non-believers in American culture, and um, what I what I found, and I'm sure other people have too, is that that's largely a false debate in terms of what exactly happened there. Uh, the there was fundamentalism there. Fundamentalism was not really being explored as a point of view. Its own inner contradictions were not exposed. Its its strengths were not exposed. Uh, how much uh, people actually took those rigid positions was not very much explored. It became a showcase for a showdown on uh, the, 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 the fight between believers and so-called non-believers and I don't think either side was as pure as they might appear in that disjunction. Um, so what I did what I did come away with was a was a much stronger sense that the the town of Dayton, Tennessee had been exploited in the interest of furthering that conflict rather than addressing, the issues at hand, and the issue at hand, I think, is one that's per, uh, pertained to this day, and that has to do with basic belief, basic belief in in uh, things transcendent, and um, and it didn't have to narrow itself that way, but it did, and it did largely because, I have to admit, the, the media uh, bent it in that direction. And the forces that wanted that case to come up as a case study uh, managed to get their way. And uh, as a result, the the town didn't feel that it was even really involved in that dispute, uh, but bore the legacy of uh, being considered rubes and backward people who, who didn't know what they were talking about. And they had lived with that, uh, with that backwards kind of laughing stock reputation uh, uh, to till, till now. Uh, even William Jennings Bryan, who was accused of being in the movie, the movie um, did a tremendous disfavor, I think, to, to the whole scene by making it seem as if he was much more of an unmovable fundamentalist and he in fact was I and mean, he was the greatest liberal of his age <laughs> in many respects uh, and, and he, he believed, for example he did not believe in a six-day creation he, uh, but it all got narrowed too quickly so that we were in the wasteland for the next 40 years before any real discussion about the differences between uh, on how you look at the Bible and its authority could start taking place again and uh, the other thing I found, i just say quickly about uh, Dayton, Tennessee, is I found that the, le- the level of biblical literalism, which is at one end of the spectrum, uh, had diminished considerably. People really didn't want to talk a whole about a lot about that, not because they were ashamed of it so much, but they had moved to a different position. So there has been some moderation of that absolute stand.
0: What have you seen change in your attitude, your life? I mean, has has reading the Bible with greater attention on a daily basis altered anything profoundly for you, or are things pretty much the same?
1: I'm not sure about the, about the scope of, of, of a correct answer there, because I think it's beyond what I can describe, but what I can say is that I'm reading the stories and the accounts differently. Somehow I am absorbing myself or being absorbed into the passages and the accounts in a much more present way than I ever have before. They're being easier to meld into the scene. It's much more an existential present. And I try very, I try very much. I don't try too hard because trying hard only it uh, defeats the purpose, but allow that to come through in ways that I don't think I ever have.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Kenneth Briggs about his new book, The Invisible Bestseller, Searching for the Bible in America. Kenneth Briggs is a journalist and commentator who has worked for many years as a religion writer for Newsday and as a religion editor for The New York Times. There's a point in one of your chapters where, where you note that by the first decade of the 21st century, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, the market was scrambling to design scriptures for different slices of the population. And you go on to say that publishers aimed at niche audiences by wrapping bundles of materials pitched to special interest, age, gender, and professional categories. But what we're talking about there is exactly what you said. It, it's an accessory it's not that they're necessarily getting these books that are that are pitched to them in this marketplace to read them, but rather to possess them as a token. Am I hearing that correctly in what you're saying? Uh, yes,
1: it is. And I think that goes together with uh, another aim, which is to make them into self-help accessories rather than sources unto themselves. <laughs> I was a little taken aback, I must say, by a lot of settings in which substitute Bibles or bible light materials have replaced the Bible itself, either because church officials or religious people are nervous about giving actual Bibles to people um, for fear that they won't be uh, uh, likely to read them. They're either shy of them or think they're too complicated and too, too difficult to read, So they give them something that seems more accessible, more available, and proliferation has gone on amazingly. Even in a lot of evangelical settings, at least I found, where I wouldn't have expected them, where they the the substitute Bibles uh, come come into play in Bible study and sometimes church uh, worship settings where there'll be pictures on the uh, videos on the wall. Bible uh, worship help materials and so on that'll be paraphrases of the Bible. This is ironic because some of these places, other places that that promoted biblical uh, literalism uh, most vigorously, will be passing out these things that are the interpretations of people who want to write books to appeal to an audience. I mean, I have certain sympathy for wanting to reach audiences and and meet them halfway, but it it expresses a curious kind of distrust that people can read the Bible and get anything out of it themselves. So you have to give them a more updated, modern version of something that will, uh, will plug into their lives at some kind of place within their life cycles that will appeal to them.
0: What, what you're saying makes me think of a, an eerie parallel. And so if you look at George Lucas and Star Wars, when he had Star Wars come out, he made sure that he maintained the licensing rights. And so around the, the, the movie itself, there grew this entire way of interacting with the movie that was imaginative and people could identify with. And so now, go forward 40 years and we have, you know, conventions where people dress up as their favorite characters or they play a Star mm-hmm. Wars card game. And it sounds to me like what you're saying is that what we're experiencing currently with the Bible is a lot like that. That there's an entire culture that has grown up around the Bible as a self-help object, or the Bible as a way of helping you improve your life, but not necessarily engaging with the Bible text itself, but rather with the culture around it and the licensing around it. Am I hearing that correctly?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think very correctly. I, I think there's anxiety about delivering the real thing. There's a loss of faith, ironically enough, in the Bible itself. And people so used to entertainment, so used to being delivered something that has sense quality to it, all kinds of things that keep them entertained. I know the pressure to do that, and i it's part of the age, and it's relentless, but it removes the actual Bible farther and farther from people's immediate awareness, and in so doing, I, I believe. It seems to me that an awful lot of people are really afraid of the Bible itself because it confronts one's existence as a whole. And it says things that I don't want to hear and I might have to uh, struggle with and decide how can I how can I live the American way of life and live biblically. And that can be too hard. So if you get some of these alternative, they'll skip a lot of the uh, negative or challenging material in recapping and abridging uh, the, uh, the Bibles for use in Bible study. I don't want to be judgmental about this, but I do think a lot of people aren't getting the Bible because there are so many substitutes around that try to cushion the power of the Bible itself and what it asks of us in ways that I think uh, many of us just don't want to do.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Kenneth Briggs about his new book, The Invisible Bestseller, Searching for the Bible in America. Kenneth Briggs is a journalist and commentator who has worked for many years as a religion writer for Newsday and as a religion editor for The New York Times. We'll be back in a moment. Hey there, everybody. If you've been following my exploits, you realize that I have a great interest in faith and science issues. And that's why I'm happy to tell you about uh, some new friends that I've made, the Zygon Center for Religion and Science at Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. Now, why I'm excited about these folks is because every, every semester in the fall and the spring, they put on what they call an advanced discussion series or an advanced seminar, and they take some topic that is important in the world of science and they put it through a lens where they bring both scientists and theologians and New Testament people and people that talk about the various aspects of religion to talk about that subject. And so this fall, they're going to be doing a series on cancer. I know, heavy subject. but. Um, they're going to look at cancer from all different angles. Some of those angles are going to be scientific, and they're going to bring in cutting-edge theologians and religious thinkers to also talk about it. I'm very excited about it. I hope that if you're in the Chicago area, you feel free to stop by. It's on Monday nights from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago down here in my neighborhood in Hyde Park. That's the Zygon Center for Religion and Science. You really should check them out. They are awesome. Now, to find out more, go online to zygoncenter.org. That's zygoncenter.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Kenneth Briggs about his new book, The Invisible Bestseller, Searching for the Bible in America. Kenneth Briggs is a journalist and commentator who has worked for many years as a religion writer for Newsday and as a religion editor for The New York Times. Well, in many ways, when we're talking about the market around the Bible, we're talking about a brave new world where there are new ways of accessing the Bible, of of rethinking and repackaging, uh, just as you said, the pieces of the Bible that we especially like. You actually sort of watched this play out in the life of a person who is going to school now to study what it means to teach this book in the 21st century. And you, you talk a little bit about uh, your engagement with Lawrence Waters, who's a mm. student there. And I'm wondering if you would just tell our listeners a little bit about what you learned from interacting with this one admittedly just one but a sort of a prototypical seminary student in the twenty first century
1: Lars did not grow up in uh, in a in a setting which supported his interest in such things. He discovered it uh, later in his life when he suddenly uh, came into contact with the bible and the, and studying the Bible, but then had a fortunately had a professor who indicated in some ways that there was more to it than you could imagine, and he began to uh, delve into it. And it began to affect the way he thought about his whole life. And that's the that's the crucial blow that the Bible will deliver to people, that it begins to say, well, wait a minute, is this uh, consistent with or... Is this uh, a, a, an alternative to the life I'm leading, or is it uh, part of, or where is it? And through that experience, uh, he found his own way, largely with the help of two or three other people, and uh, found himself at uh, after college, after kind of a rough road in college, found himself at Candler, and and really came to life there and. He was uh, aiming for his Ph.D., and I, I think he might be involved in the Ph.D. program there now. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but something happened that turned him in a road. And I, I, I mention him because he is more typical of what young people experience in gaining affinity and passion for the Bible than it was like in older times. When it was much easier to get the uh, the green light from your church community or from your neighborhood, all those things were much more supportive and nurturing in those days. And Lawrence was an example of, of someone. And he's one of them. He's one of them who is uh, kind of uh, a person who came into a new existence because of uh, of his experience with the Bible, although. New experiences, will face him all along. You know, if you want to look at the Bible closely enough, it's going to ask different things of you that may be tasteful, may be distasteful. So he—he he, a, a great guy.
0: You know, we look at the history. Where a person would say that they wanted to be a minister, and I, I've got extended family that, that are part of the Grand Rapids community, that was almost like a, a golden anointing when a, when a person said they wanted to go to Calvin College and become a minister in the Christian Reformed Church. But now, as you've just said, I think a lot of parents push back against that and say, why do you want to go and do such a fuzzy liberal arts thing? Can't you become an engineer? Can't you become a banker? And so we've really had an entire cultural shift, not just in terms of what gets debated on the news, but in terms of the very way that we are supporting our children in their interests and their dreams. And I I wonder, as you look forward from reporting out this book, you know, Lawrence would be an example that we just spoke about of a person who's bucking that trend. But do you think that trend is winning, and will the Bible ever come back and and ministry and those other uh, uh, vocations around the Bible come back to the kind of cultural cachet that they had a generation or two ago?
1: I think that's an excellent question. And I I don't know. You know. Everybody's always locating turning points and watershed periods in history. But I do think something is going on now that, I haven't seen in my lifetime a turn away from natural assumptions about what belongs within our lives and what doesn't. Essential to that is a doubt about whether belief is possible, whether faith is possible. We're all centered and we're all prone to believe that anything we need to solve can be solved within the realm of the earth that the idea of, uh, of transcendence or otherworldliness or miracle is has faded. That's the fundamental uh, level of, of doubt and conditioning. I cite a lot of Charles Taylor's book, uh, A Secular Age, as documenting how that's happened, and others have done it too. But uh, we're, I think we're at that kind of venerable turning point where we don't know What's going to be easy to grow and what is, and right now none of it's easy to grow, I don't think, and a lot of the assumptions about how it can be spread, a lot of the the mission presuppositions, I don't think work anymore for the most part and, you know, I don't usually like to listen too much to the, yes, it's not going well in the Western world, but look at... uh, some of the non-Western world, and it's growing like crazy, because I think that's where the non-Western world is going to, and so I do think it's a matter of just time. But I think we're in a, in a dilemma that we've got to have some courage to face rather than thinking that there will be yet a new program that will uh, solve the problem. Uh, I know that there, there are groups now who are very alarmed, uh, very good groups, that are looking of ways to to kind of put the Bible back into consideration. That we are at a time. I think this is the the the, the age, It's an age of perplexity in general. Uh, things are falling apart on many levels. There are a lot of assumptions being challenged, and and religious assumptions among them. But I think this is a time when there... Probably is a way in which the Bible and what it has to say as the messenger can be accepted as a valid part of the discussion about where we go from here and who we are and what our purpose is. Charles Taylor says why was it impossible not to believe in God in 1600 And um, uh, and why is it almost impossible now to believe in God why is that and what needs to what would what would be the next thing? What, what is, what is, if you will, the world of, of Christianity in particular? What is it called to do at this point?
0: Well, Kenneth Briggs, I have really enjoyed speaking to you today, and I learned a great deal from reading your book. And just thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. We've been speaking today with Kenneth Briggs about his book, The The Invisible Bestseller, Searching for the Bible in America. Kenneth Briggs is a journalist and commentator who has worked for many years as a religion writer for Newsday and as a religion editor for The New York Times. He's taught journalism and religion at Columbia University, Lafayette College, and Lehigh University. His previous books include The Power of Forgiveness and Double-Crossed, Uncovering the Catholic Church's Betrayal of American Nuns. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalton. and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.